look at where the money's coming from. Now the money has strings attached. People give the WHO money, but they say, we want you to do this or study that. And we want you to use our consultants and our experts and our scientists. Many of them come from pharma. Pharma has pretty much completely infiltrated this organization. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton, your host. In just a moment, Dr. Corey is going to be discussing how the science around ivermectin is being distorted and dismissed by interests that would be negatively impacted by its widespread adoption. And then he's gonna take your questions, as many as we can get in. But first I have to give you the important disclaimer Remember that this is not personal medical advice, everything that you're hearing from us. We don't, we don't know what medicines you take or what diseases you've ever been diagnosed with, what's going on inside your body. That's what your personal physician knows. So take the information that you hear from us tonight back to your doctor, discuss it, and then decide what's right for you. Also, it's just important for me to tell you who we are. For those who don't know, what is the FLCCC Alliance? Well, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are not selling drugs. We don't manufacture anything. We are not making any money off of ivermectin or anything else that are in our protocols or that we're talking about. This group is a group of doctors and supporters like me, media people who came together with the total purpose a year ago, a little more than a year ago now, to save lives in a hellish pandemic. That's it. That's how this got started. The doctors started creating protocols based on their knowledge, their observations, their expertise. That's who we are. And those of you who have been supporting us with donations, God bless you. Thank you. We greatly appreciate it. And now, Dr. Corey, are you ready? Take yes. it away. Uh, hi, thanks for that, Betsy. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, we're really at war for, for health and for really for our lives and, um, and our patients' lives. And uh, that's why tonight I'm going to talk again about um, the WHO. I, I just think this really needs to be addressed. This word has to get out. Uh, and I'm just going to keep hammering it um, as much as I can. I really want to talk about the WHO, what they've done, uh, and how they're really hurting uh, global public health. Um, before we get to that, you know, there, we, there are some bright spots. So I, I do want to talk about some, uh, we, we really are making advances in the world. So I don't want to be doom and gloom, because uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to use the term we're winning, but I do, do see a sea change happening. Um, I think more attention is being paid uh, to this obstruction uh, and the harms and that really the failures of our uh, healthcare agencies and um, uh, I think that kind of got supercharged with our uh, paper. So a review paper, uh, which took a long time to get to publication, uh, has now been published, right? And so uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, it was published about 10 days ago, uh, and it's extremely popular. Uh, using this altmetric score, it, it's got like a sky-high score. It basically... Uh, since it's been published, uh, about 200,000 other scientific publications have come out since then, and we are number 13 out of that. And in all time, out of the 17.7 .7 million 
scientific publications ever tracked by this score <clears throat> in about last 10 years, we're number 246. So it's really getting an increasing amount of attention, a lot of news outlets, many of them in India. Uh, and so we're really hopeful that we're having a positive impact in the world right now. Um, you know, I am not going over, <clears throat> sorry, I am not going over the efficacy of ivermectin because it's proven. You know, Dr. Laurie is one of the world experts at making guidelines, doing systematic reviews. Just her group alone and their independent effort, the, the Bird Consortium, uh, they arrived at the conclusion that it should be the standard of care. Um, our article also arrived at that same conclusion. We're not alone, right? So uh, uh, Professor Amura, the Nobel Prize winner, his group from Japan, they published their review paper concluding the same. Another independent group from Spain and Italy. And the key about all of these groups, and I think you need to understand this, is that we are independent expert panels. None of us are conflicted. None of us have any other interest than the oaths that we took as physicians, which is uh, to the care of our patients. And when you do that, and you look critically at a medicine, especially in a pandemic, you can't help but arrive uh, at, at an objective conclusion uh, that it is the standard of care. And it really is doing um, uh, phenomenal uh, impacts around the world. So, <clears throat> you know, we think, and we've long maintained, I'm going to revisit Mexico for a second, because um, Mexico, we think, is the model for the world, uh, and we're starting to see this model being copied in India. But Me Mexico, uh, if you guys recall, uh, late December, they were overrun uh, in the hospitals. They, they were sort of like India was uh, or is right now. Um, and they adopted a test and treat strategy where everybody get tested positive, they were given ivermectin. And pretty soon, within a week or two of that happening, the death rates and the hospitalizations it just absolutely plummeted. And that's that's something we've seen in many other countries and regions around the world. But this is all across Mexico. And Mexico did a bold move because their IMSS, which is their kind of outpatient uh, hospital or, or outpatient system, they adopted it in a nationwide basis. And so now in that country, the most accurate measure of fatalities in society is if you just look at excess deaths, not COVID, not otherwise, you can see during the pandemic, uh, you know, the excess death rates compared to the baseline variability when you're not in a pandemic skyrocketed in these two peaks. And now they're again approaching normal baseline death rates in society across Mexico. This is a major, major event. And they have, I think, one between one and 5% vaccinated. This is not the vaccines, folks. This is not the vaccines. This is ivermectin at work. And so much so, when you look back to December, their hospitals are empty. The green is they're showing 25 to 30% occupancy all across Mexico, the only two places where they had high occupancy are areas where they really don't have a lot of hospital beds. So they basically emptied the, the hospital. Now, the most ominous thing, and this isn't ominous, but the ominous thing about this is exactly no one is talking about this in Mexico. No major media in Mexico is talking about how they emptied the hospitals by virtue of a national program of ivermectin distribution. Um, in fact, there was a uh, press conference last week, Juan Chimie attended. He tried to ask questions about it. They did not take his questions. And the entire uh, uh, press conference was about how well they're doing and how much hope they are for the vaccines. There was no mention of ivermectin. Um, you're gonna see this all over the place. And if you look at um, Israel, 
they, what happened when they, uh, th their death rates um, uh, you know, during the vaccination rose and then they now they've uh, plummeted. And so they have very low deaths. Everyone, most, everyone in Israel is, uh, is vaccinated. But if, look, if you look at Mexico, Mexico City, they got to the same place without the vaccines. And it shows how it's a credible alternative to vaccines. Now, what's going on in India, this is some of the positives, right? So I, I'm actually, you know, uh, uh, glad that they're, you know, more widely recognized. You know, we know in India there are some states that were heavily using ivermectin, but certainly not all. It's been fragmented. The WHO guideline and the JMA, uh, the JAMA paper, both set back ivermectin. But in the crisis, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi, which is sort of like their premier health care institution in the country. They approved it as well as the Indian Council of Medical Research, which is a national organization. Now, states do their own thing that, you know, India is not like a homogenous place. Um, and there's lots of uh, rebellious states. Um, but it's still uh, important to see, um, a, you know, a national recognition that ivermectin uh, should be used. And so they recommended that uh, late, uh, late April, early May. Um, and now if you're looking, <clears throat> We're starting to see a turn with India, right? So uh, in Maharashtra, where the outbreak was really the worst, that's where you hear all of those horror stories. Um, and uh, that's where it began. It kind of spread to Delhi and to other places uh, in India. But now you're starting to see a flattening of the fatalities and the cases are going down. And again, this pattern we've seen all over the place. When ivermectin starts to be adopted, you always see flattening followed by a pretty, pretty rapid reduction. Um, and that actually can be seen also in Delhi, right? So a little bit farther away. In Delhi, you're starting to see that. And then the hospitals in Delhi, you're starting to see empty a little bit, right? So 89 to 99% uh, uh, occupancy in the beds, especially the ICU beds and oxygen beds, now they're coming down 80%, 82% um, in just the span of a few days. And so you're starting to see the hospitals empty. And so this is a really encouraging sign uh, for India. And we believe it's certainly not the vaccines that are doing it. We believe that this is ivermectin at work. So now let's go back to the problem because <clears throat> although there are countries that get it, you know, there's a long list of, of countries around the world that are started to adopt this. Um, you know, it's still being obstructed in most of uh, West, the Western world, right? So North America, Western Europe, um, they are absolutely staunchly opposed uh, to, to ivermectin. Everybody knows uh, Canada, uh, World Health Organization, the Europeans, the NIH, even South Africa still doesn't recommend it, although they allow it. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, you might wonder why that is. So we uh, worked on a white paper in the last few weeks. We just posted it on our website, and we're going to be distributing it to um, uh, to a lot of folks and colleagues and, and other kind of organizations like the FLCCC, I will say our organization is not unique. Um, we are, we, you know, I'm in contact with a network of very like-minded scientists and physicians uh, from numerous countries around the world, from Philippines and South Africa and Zimbabwe uh, and Central America, South America, um, and large, large parts of Europe. There's, there's groups in France and Italy and the Netherlands as well, um, all working hard as even Canada. Canada is rip-roaring right now because of uh, what the Canadian uh, government or healthcare agencies are doing. Um, so I put out this white paper and I hope that it gets attention because <clears throat> 
it's really, in, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't do this for a living, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a keen observer of what's happening uh, with the science around ivermectin. I know the science around, around ivermectin, and I had to try to figure out why the world wasn't adopting this. And, uh, and these are just really a collection of my observations um, uh, over the weeks as I've tried to study this. And so uh, I think the, it sort of begins in the, the major action against ivermectin was perpetrated by the World Health Organization, but they are not unique in their guilt of, of really distorting the science around ivermectin. They're not unique at all. Um, I just think they did uh, the most egregious job um, but I'll tell you, the one thing that they did is they helped me understand what's going on in the world because I thought I was going crazy. But the, what the World Health did, and I'm going to go over this in a second, is in their recommendation, they outlined exactly how they interpreted the evidence around ivermectin. So they basically left, they had to open their books and they showed what they did to the evidence base. Um, and it's a near criminal action, in my opinion. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But first off, <clears throat> let's talk about why the WHO has the stature and why so many people listen to the WHO. And, and I'll say that, they, it, you know, WHO has this incredible history, right? It accomplished some of the most amazing things in the history of public health in the world, right? So when it was first founded, um, it was founded on these really high principles that health is a human right. Um, and it, its main focus was on really elevating the public health of citizens around the world. And some of its early achievements are truly, truly remarkable, right? And I think that's why the WHO is held in such high regard, right? They eradicated smallpox in about 12 years. They nearly eradicated polio. They were a huge force in combating the HIV and TB campaigns. And they also oversaw this incredible era of the development of antibiotics. Um, the problem is this, is that when they started and a lot of their achievements, it really was probably driven by the fact that all of their funding, and they were well-funded, was without restrictions, which is that they could isolate problems, even if they weren't money-making problems, even if anyone, no one had interest, a particular interest, or maybe even if it affected just low-income countries, they could go and attack those diseases. And there was no preferences of what they worked on and what they didn't. They had, you know, they had the ability to make those decisions without any sort of external influences. That's the problem is that was the who then, but the who now is quite, quite different. And that organization has now been transformed and it is not the organization it once was. And that's what I'm gonna talk about tonight. So I do not wanna de detract from their achievements, um, but I do wanna detract, I do wanna talk about what they're doing today, which is they are actually working contrary to the public interest and that needs to be called out. And that's why I'm lecturing on this issue again today. So, Look at where the money's coming from. Now the money has strings attached. People give the WHO money, but they say, we want you to do this or study that. And we want you to use our consultants and our experts and our scientists. Many of them come from pharma. Pharma has pretty much completely infiltrated this organization. And I'll give you examples of that um, in the next uh, bunch of slides. Um, and so much so, that now with the proportion of budgets, you're starting to see these corporate funders and the corporate funders actually come in sometimes in the guise of nonprofits, but there's still corporate interest behind those nonprofits. And they're promoting the use of pharmaceutical products. Now we understand that pharmaceutical products can really create health, right? And they can cure illness, um, but they also have harms and some of those harms get mitigated. And um, we've seen uh, over the last 10 years, 
a major influence of the vaccine industry uh, as it works through the WHO. And that's, it seems to be occurring again. Um, and these funders can dictate clinical research and different, basically focuses that are in their interest and maybe not in the public health of the world. Um, the other thing is that the WHO, like other places, is completely subject to this revolving door. Once you get a, a, a position in WHO, you can go on to pharma and vice versa. You go from pharma to WHO, um, and then you can rotate in government and everybody kind of knows each other. So the influences between uh, government, WHO and pharmaceutical are, are even tighter uh, and, and more hidden than you would imagine. Um, and now that's what's the, the who of late now has been really attacked for a couple of decades. They started doing some really unconscionable things. So number one, even in their heyday, you'd have to overlook the decades of influence of the tobacco industry, right? So they basically looked the other way while the tobacco uh, sellers, you know, were peddling their wares around the world, which is pretty much the most toxic substance uh, ever known in public health. Right. And that's still manufactured and sold today. Um, but they also did some really egregious things around Chernobyl and Fukushima, which is they essentially put out reports saying, like, no big deal, didn't really impact the health of anyone around or or anyone globally, which is a patently false observation. So they're showing that just in the reports on the accidents with the nuclear industry, that they are capable of being heavily influenced in their recommendation and their reports. H1N1 was a big scandal, which is that in the middle of that <clears throat> season, I'm not going to call it a pandemic, they essentially changed the definition of what was a pandemic. And there's evidence showing that the vaccine you manufacturers influenced them to change that definition. And once you called it a pandemic, it was a heyday to sell and manufacture vaccines. And so that we already had a quota with, that one was a fake pandemic. This one's apparently is real, um, but you've seen the, uh, the, the influence of vaccines. And then uh, Ebola was more just sort of incompetence, but also showing influence of probably political uh, influences there, which is they were slow to call it an emergency and probably due to political influences. So you're seeing now that there are interests that can work through the WHO to achieve some pretty nefarious ends. Now, when you think about ivermectin, and, and I got to say, ivermectin is just an example of how pharma and other interests can work. Ivermectin is just one drug, but you can imagine other drugs which we follow the same fate. But <clears throat> when you think about ivermectin, you think about the opposition. So in some of my talks, and even on like uh, when I tweet, I use this thing, I, uh, hashtag David versus Goliath. But if you think of ivermectin, little old ivermectin, has the capacity, it's such an effective and potent medicine in this disease model. Um, I think it rivals penicillin and bacteria, but it's so potent that it has the potential to kneecap. Like Tess said in that opening uh, video, she mentioned like, I don't know if it's a hundred billion dollar market, it's at least the many tens of billions. If you think about all of the vaccines and now the pharma companies are literally salivating about the market for booster shots. They've been overheard and emails have been uncovered where they can't wait until this is called an endemic and not a pandemic so that they don't have to protect the prices anymore. Um, the EUAs for the vaccines are threatened if you have an effective alternative that's safe and been around for 40 years and that you can use for treatment and prevention. Um, numerous competition, competing molecules, right? 
And so, and the other thing is the philanthropic sponsors, many of them, and I'll talk that in a second, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they're essentially a, a proxy for the vaccine industry. They're completely and solely uh, focused on, on a mass vaccination strategy. There's numerous oral antivirals coming out, long acting antibody products, monoclonal antibodies, and then your favorite and mine, remdesivir. And so if you saw ivermectin widely adopted around the world, as you can see in Mexico, you're starting to see in India, you'd probably not have a problem here and this market would collapse. So if you're listening, I can't imagine in, in, pharma, in the history of pharmaceuticals, uh, a, a, a competing interest as deep and as vast uh, as is arrayed against little ivermectin. And so um, it, it's truly uh, almost incalculable, uh, the interest against it. So <clears throat> I invite everyone to read this uh, article. I found this to be really eye-opening. Uh, it was about an investigative reporter. It's in the very well-regarded um, uh, uh, magazine uh, called The New Republic. And it really uh, details uh, the outsized influence that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and really Bill Gates has in vaccine policy throughout the world and really public health. Um, he has a huge influence on many different uh, public health agencies and le not least of which is the WHO. Um, so much so that if you look at the funding, they're the number two funder outside of the US. Um, massive amounts. They've given over almost $4 billion in the last 20 years. Um, and the ACT, the ACT Accelerator Program, which was the program that was supposed to devise and find out solutions uh, to, to COVID, is basically operated by the Gates Foundation. And so is Unidade, which actually did the research on ivermectin. You know, I guess it bit the hand that fed them. Um, but um, they are clearly an organization who feels that there's no problem that can't be solved uh, without with a vaccine uh, or with, without a vaccine. Um, and they also have funded uh, McMaster. McMaster is all over this guideline recommendation. And so there's a lot of influence of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, in these. And even, even more alarming than New, New Republic article was this um, ridiculous story. I mean, I, I listened to this. This was a, uh, a whistleblower who basically relayed that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually applied, like with, with, with a straight face, applied for sovereign nation status at the WHO so that they could have a nice little chair with the BMGF next to Tanzania. And you, well, they wouldn't sit next to Tanzania, I, I assume, but uh, you know, they'd be at the big table, the G7 table. Um, but they literally wanted a table to get a, that have the status of an independent sovereign nation. I mean, if, if you want to talk about the influence of one man, uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, the, um, uh, then if you look at the technical lead of the, of the guideline, if you look, uh, she's very seemingly very highly related to Bill Gates. When you refresh the page, Melinda Gates shows up. So those guys are pretty tight. So how, how did they work? How does... Um, what I want to talk about is all of the different forces that are working against ivermectin. I'm going to talk about uh, um, the WHO in particular and what, what they did as far as disinformation. And so 
Um, I've talked about this before, but this was first coined by the, the Union of Concerned Scientists. We've been around about 50 years. And they wrote this article, which I found really illuminating. It really talks about how, again, rare, not all corporations are bad, but basically they've detailed that over the decades, corporations have developed tactics to attack science when it goes against their financial interest. And it's not a complicated playbook. They keep doing the same five plays um, and it takes one of these forms, right? It's, which is sometimes they'll get a trial to show a negative or a positive result to support their drug, right? Or if, if a scientist comes up with a discovery that goes against their interest, they'll harass or to try to discredit the scientist. And then they're always trying to ma manufacture uncertainty about science that's inconvenient to their bottom line. And then uh, uh, also worryingly is they will buy credi credibility through alliances with academia or professional societies. Now those two are in red because those are the two most glaring plays in the disinformation playbook that I've seen in regards to uh, ivermectin. But I have the feeling that the other five are, are going. Um, and there's some, so many examples of this. So we don't even have to talk about what the tobacco industry did to try to distort uh, the science around the harms of tobacco. But um, if you look at asbestos and the drug Vioxx with Merck, they totally tried to protect Vioxx. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline did the same thing around Avandia. More recently, you guys know at the NFL, right, with the traumatic, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the scientist who first started to describe it, he was totally discredited and attacked by the NFL. The NFL did some egregious stuff, and they have, what, a $6 billion market? Um, and they, they didn't want the little kids to not join, you know, Pop Warner football. And so they need more football players. So it's really important that you not understand that it causes brain damage. Um, and then probably the most egregious of big pharma actions in, for, in terms of disinformation campaigns is what Purdue Pharma did, right? So Purdue Pharma has already shown, like a lot of the other pharmaceutical companies, they really don't care about the health of their customers. They don't care if we die. They care about selling pharmaceutical products. And if you look at what Purdue Pharma did, they essentially created a huge epidemic of drug addicts. If you guys remember, the first time that morgues were overflowing and filling refrigerated trucks was not COVID. It was opiates in small towns around this country where you have so many kids dying of drug overdoses and all because of this anti-oxycontin craze. And so the list goes on and on. Um, now let's talk about what happened at the WHO guideline, because I really think that history, uh, I hope that history uh, is, is, will record what they did to the public health. And I think the WHO just shows themselves as completely vulnerable to their funders. And I think this is disinformation acting through the WHO, and I'm going to outline how. I'm doing it in one slide. But what you'd have to do, and I, it does not take a genius, I don't do this for a living, but if you look at this document and you look at the ivermectin section and you start at the first sentence and you read carefully to the last, you are going to tell within the first sentence the tone in which this section is written. Just look at the tone. The first sentence, you can tell it has one goal and one goal only, which is to quash any idea that ivermectin could be effective. When it talks about the mechanisms of action, all it does is talk about how none of the mechanisms of action could potentially be relevant. And so they just whack and thwack away any possible idea that ivermectin works. And it is just rife with just insanity. 
when you look, you know, as, as one of the world, I guess a world expert in ivermectin and COVID-19, I know what the evidence shows. I've been living, eating, and breathing this stuff for months. So I was really interested when I saw the recommendation and I opened the books, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, um, a company that's been, you know, losing a billion dollars or suddenly, you know, reports a billion dollar profit. Like you have to find out in the books how they managed to do this voodoo. And so when I looked, <clears throat> it's not subtle. I, again, I say it all the time. The stuff that they're doing is not subtle. It is so clear that whoever was in charge of that panel, they had a non-scientific objective. They had one objective. And I think someone told them, and you know who I think told them, go into that room, come out with a recommendation against ivermectin. I don't care how you do it, just do it. I don't want you to leave that room until you come out with a recommendation. And this is what they did. Number one, there's no protocol for excluding data. So they were basically free to throw out any trial that they found inconvenient to their purpose. And guess what? They did that. They threw out a lot of the trials that the, their own Unitaid team had uncovered and amassed over the last bunch of months. They threw out quasi-randomized trials. You know, in a pandemic, you can't be bothered with a quasi-randomized trial. You only want perfect, you know, crystal clear randomized trials, even if it shows significantly lower mortality, best to throw them out, I think, for public health sake. They also excluded trials if they weren't like perfect with placebo, like if you gave it with doxycycline or you compared it to hydroxychloroquine, even if it showed massive benefits, let's throw those out. Those are inconvenient. We only really want just the cream of the crop because you don't want to make a mistake with one of the world's safest and cheapest drugs because God forbid if we ever recommended a super safe and cheap drug, I mean, look at the harms we would cause. So we got to be super careful. Not like remdesivir, you know, remdesivir, we'll go to town with, you know, 800 patients in one trial. Uh, you know, we'll take the farmer's word for it. Um, forgive me if my sarcasm is getting the best of me, but uh, I, I get really angry about this stuff, guys. And then... They only report on 16. I know their researcher. We've been collaborating with him. I know they were sitting on more trials than that, but they decided to do this interim uh, recommendation before accumulating all of them because they can wait. They can wait until the fall if they want to give up an update. They can do whatever they want, right? And then they made the decision they don't want any OCTs, which are observational controlled trials. So they threw a ton of those out, all showing the same thing that the randomized controlled trials are. And then the most egregious thing for me is that there's a sentence in there and it just simply says, it doesn't even bother to defend it. It just says, we did not look at randomized controlled trials in the prevention of COVID-19, period. No reason why, no reason not why, just we didn't do it. You know, it's almost like, you know, if I came, I just said, I, I didn't do my homework. You know, I just, that's all I got. I didn't do my homework. Um, I could probably work on a better analogy than that, but uh, I find that absolutely astonishing that they saw fit. Does anyone out there, again, I always say, raise your hands, although I can't see you. And there's a lot of people on this call, <laughs> Jesus, um, you know, raise your hand if you can think of a reason why they wouldn't want to look at ivermectin in the prevention of COVID-19. Yes, I, I, the, the sound is deafening. Put your hands down now. Um, let's continue on. So uh, also, epidemiologic studies, Juan Chimia and all of his stuff that he's been doing for a year and posting Everest showing every place that does widespread ivermectin distribution or adoption, you see case counts and deaths plummet. They actually 
were presented that data. David Scheim, the senior author of that paper, presented the epidemiologic data with all the confounders thrown out. And they showed uh, that to the WHO. And yet, the WHO, not one mention of that data in that document. Again, I know this stuff. So when I read it, you know, I, I literally, my, my head was in my hands and I'm just like, these guys are criminals. They're literally criminals. Um, and then when they wanted to look at whether it's a safe drug or not, this is, I mean, it, it gets comical. It's just absolutely comical. They, they include three studies where there's like a little suggestion that there's some increased adverse effects. And then they say, you know, it could be harmful. So it doesn't work because we threw out all the data showing that it works. The ones that are left, there's just not enough data there to say that it works. But you know what we are seeing is that it could be harmful. I mean, absolutely ludicrous what they're doing. And then the JAMA study, which is worldwide considered one of the worst and crappiest studies ever conducted, um, they had it as the lowest risk of bias. They had it as a high quality study. It's, I'm telling you, this is absolutely laughable. Um, so basically, this is what they did. So in order to come up with this ridiculous recommendation, which is at this point, after 24 randomized control trials, um, numerous observational control trials, epidemiologic data all around the world, for them to still say don't use outside of a trial, it based on two things. So per the guidelines, if you have, you have to have very low certainty in order to recommend that. So if you, because they had so many positive trials, the only reason, the only way you could discount the positivity is by grading the evidence as low certainty or very low certainty. And that's what they did. And by the way, that is an isolated position. All of the other independent expert panels graded as moderate. And I remind the audience, corticosteroids, which are the standard of care worldwide in moderate to severe COVID, sits on moderate certainty of evidence. So if they accorded ivermectin moderate certainty of evidence, guess what? I wouldn't be here lecturing right now because everybody would be on ivermectin. Um, so one is they had to make it low certainty. Now, to make it low certainty, they had to do a few things. One, they had to throw out most of the trials that they had, <clears throat> which they did in a totally arbitrary and insane manner. Two, they had to ignore a large magnitude of effect on mortality. In that insane document, they actually report that there's a mortality reduction of up to 91%. But they say there's so few events, they can't be certain so they throw it out. They're saying it's so so low low uh, so low certainty, so few events. We can't really take it seriously. Um, I would probably say you should take it seriously because you're saving lives. But again, it's the world's safest and cheapest drug, so you got to be careful. Um, also, what is only I know this. So the average reader wouldn't know this. But they actually talk about dose-response relationships in this document, and they talk about five different outcomes in which they didn't find a dose-response relationship, except for the one outcome where there is a dose-response relationship, because one of their researchers, when he was allowed to speak publicly before they put a muzzle on him at the end of January, <clears throat> and they told him to shut up in public, and he sort of went dark and disappeared, before that happened, he was lecturing very happily, showing this really strong relationship of dose response in terms of time to viral clearance. They deliberately didn't mention. When I read it, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. They're gonna talk about the uh, dose response relationship and 
I read it and reread it three times and no, it's not there. So they deliberately avoided mention. They completely omitted really important data because if that's there, that's a huge scientific pillar showing efficacy. And to show how absurd, as if, if I didn't win, like if this is a courtroom, I wish I was a lawyer here because I could, I wish I could have like a, a jury in front of me and I could go to toe to toe with these, these, uh, I'm not going to curse, but um, if I could, I would finish with my closing argument. I would say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, in exhibit A, I submit to you the WHO guideline document of ivermectin in the treatment of scabies from 2018. The WHO guideline at that time, they recommended ivermectin in the treatment of scabies based on an evidence base of 10 RCTs with only 852 patients. And it wasn't even as good as the standard of care, which was permethrin cream. The only reason why they recommend it is because permethrin cream is a bear to put on and, and really to use. And so even though it wasn't as good as, as it is, they approved it. And then the treatment of strongloidiasis, a parasitic infection versus albendazole, it got approval with, uh, I can't see, what is it? I think it's five RCT, yeah, five RCTs and 591 patients. So as Chris Martinson says, his famous joke, which is he says, oh yeah, Pierre, you remember that worldwide pandemic that cratered the economies across the world of scabies and where the WHO like rushed in and they did this emergent approval to treat that pandemic of scabies and they saved the world. And I said, no, Chris, I don't remember that pandemic. And he says, yeah, there wasn't one. Um, but in this pandemic, they really are waiting for just the perfect amount of evidence. So if you look at the independent bird committee, they came to the conclusion that it should be standard of care. They used all the trials, 21 trials, 2,741 patients, and that evidence base is only larger now. Um, so again, ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case that the WHO essentially committed a criminal action or allowed themselves I don't even know how you want to say it, but but this is clearly not science that's going on here. Not science. The fix was in. The fix is in. Uh, and so this is just an example of that same slide of comparing like, so tobacco is freely available. It kills a half a million. It saves no one, but it's, I wouldn't say it's recommended, but it's available. Tylenol causes 450 uh, deaths a year, saves nobody, yet it's a recommendation for use in COVID. <laughs> and I'm sorry I'm laughing because I, I, to be honest, most of the time I'm funny and I could really give this lecture like really angry and I'm, I'm trying not to, but, um, and then ivermectin and scabies, you know, ivermectin really has not been associated with deaths from treatment. Um, and, 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 you know, it doesn't save any lives in scabies, but yet it's recommended. And it could save a half a million, like Tess Laurie said, it could have saved, you know, a half a million lives this year if it had been approved, yet they still can't recommend it. Um, the other thing, if you read carefully in that document, I mean, it just, my jaw just got lower and lower and lower because I'm screaming at the, I'm, I'm, I'm literally holding it like, are you kidding me? Why isn't the world talking about this? And this is where I also bring in condemnation to the, to the media. Where are the science desks? Why am I doing this? Why can't a credible scientific reporter talk about what I just talked about in this lecture? It's insane, right? But they didn't hold a vote. They didn't bring this to the wider committee. And the reason why is the quality of the evidence was so poor, they didn't think that they needed to bring it to vote because why would you vote on crap evidence? It's crap evidence. And then uh, uh, what's even more alarming is there's actually, I know the folks were involved in this allegation of scientific misconduct, but there's really strong and credible evidence 
that the researchers who put out that ivermectin meta-analysis did not write it. They did not write the conclusion. It was written by non-authors and the sponsors. Almost like a drug company trial giving money to researchers to do a trial and then uh, basically writing the paper for them. It's basically the same thing. Um, and then there's also other reports uh, during COVID where whistleblowers uh, talked about uh, external influences. And I, I uh, again invite everyone to watch this documentary. It a lot of what uh, I talk about tonight is informed by this documentary. It just basically shows this horrific fall of a once august and really mighty organization. And basically now it's just completely captured by pharmaceutical interest. And it's a really, really sad uh, ending. In fact, this was the closing scene. This is the then director general when she was asked you know why don't you resign what why don't you you know why don't you she basically the the questioner is basically saying you know you guys are like killing people like you're you're not like you're not acting in the public health and i think the director was just annoyed and she was in a bad mood that day because she actually just said you know what for 70 percent of our budget i have to go around the world and beg for money when they give us the money it is highly linked to their preferences what they like, and it may not be the priority of the WHO, there's an understatement for you. And so much so that those corrupt reports that came out around Chernobyl and Fukushima, so many scientists, the ones with a conscience, actually left the WHO to form the independent WHO. And they did that uh, because they knew uh, that they couldn't do good science and good public health in good conscience within the WHO. So, uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of us who I think wanna try to join them. Um, and then this is just yesterday. I'm sorry for the cursing at the top, but but this is just absurd. But this is a tweet. Again, I, I can't even believe I'm presenting this, but this is a tweet by the chief scientist of the WHO yesterday. So in the last couple of days. So the chief scientist, I'm going to call it the chief genius of the WHO. So first, <laughs> she reminds the world of the mild COVID-19 home care bundle. Take your temperature, wash your hands. I don't know, what is that? Put a pillow under your head, take a Tylenol, stretch, blow your nose, and then call for help once you need the hot. I don't know what that means. But anyway, you guys get it. That's the WHO's home care bundle. No mention of ivermectin. And then she actually tweets against ivermectin yesterday, telling the world, you need to be sure it's a safe and effective drug uh, and don't use ivermectin because we recommend against it and our friends Merck recommend. They, she literally cited a pharmaceutical company. The chief scientist of the WHO used a pharmaceutical company as a citation for not using ivermectin. And we'll talk about what Merck did in, in a second. So that's just the WHO. Let's do a little tour around the world and I'll show the other insanity that's happening and how the forces, remember that slide with the $100 billion market against ivermectin? Well, they're pretty active in a lot of other spheres. So um, uh, France, my heritage, my, my mother is from France. And this is one of our partners in the fight, Gerard uh, Maudreau. Uh, uh, from France, who's been really active proponent of ivermectin. They submitted an application for an EUA um, and it was rejected. And guess what? <laughs> and this is why I said the WHO document was, was really interesting because they basically opened the books and you could see the insanity that they did. And that's why I outlined it. A lot of these other guys, they just don't recommend it and they don't show you what they're doing. And that's what happened here in France, which is that they just rejected it. They started one positive study and they said more studies are needed. Um, they only cited six of 50, 
right? So one positive study for prevention, six of the 50 uh, for treatment, and then they didn't show any documentation of the deliberation. So they basically, they, you know, they were probably smarter than the WHO because they didn't show their books. They just said, no, nah, we couldn't find anything to recommend. And so it's, it's and now they're, they're suing uh, because they're not being transparent. Um, and then if you compare um, uh, ivermectin to uh, uh, remdesivir, right? So remdesivir, right? <laughs> it was granted approval by the FDA on promising data from a small trial with about a thousand participants. Didn't save lives. You got about two days uh, a quicker recovery and $3,000 a dose, but it enjoys uh, receipt by almost uh, many countries around the world get rem uh, patients get remdesivir. Um, let's just go through and, and I'll show you different ways in which disinformation works. Let's move away from the WHO. Let's talk about uh, medical journals. So um, here's a note to self or a note to others. If you write a manuscript on a repurposed drug that competes against vaccines, um, probably a good idea not to submit to Frontiers, right? Because, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, which is essentially a vaccine organization, uh, they wouldn't be happy if you uh, were, you know, to publish on it. So uh, just uh, keep that in mind. It's good advice. Um, I don't deliver this joke very well, but I wish I had taken that advice, right? So you, some of you guys know, our peer-reviewed manuscript, which just got published, was actually retracted after peer review from Frontiers. I think this is a coincidence. This slide and this slide removes controversial. Of course, our paper is controversial. It's controversial because it got retracted. <laughs> Not because it was controversial, uh, but yes. The same organization of journals uh, that Bill and Melinda Gates funded, somehow right before publication, they whacked our paper. And I gotta tell you, we're not alone. So Tess Laurie, an expert systematic reviewer, has worked from the WHO for decades. She submitted to Lancet Respiratory, passed peer review, the editors wrote to her and said, we cannot publish. They just said they were too worried, they didn't think the evidence was there. Even though expert peer reviewers for both papers, three senior science, governmental scientists of our paper passed our peer review, yet the editors decided to whack it. I don't know. They just some, somehow didn't like our paper. Um, and this goes further. So since our paper was uh, retracted, the editors, a number of editors at Frontiers resigned en masse because they started messing with other repurposed drug papers and the behavior was so egregious and so irregular. And it was so clear to these editors that, that they, they just could not, um, they, they knew there was no integrity and no scientific um, uh, objectives that, that were being followed here. And so they resigned on mass. And the resignation letter is pretty scathing. And so this also got picked up by the scientists. Um, and so you, there's a couple of ways you can get rid of inconvenient science. So one is you can whack it right before retraction. The other is just don't accept it. Don't send it out for peer review. So uh, Dr. Elgazar from Egypt, he conducted the world's largest randomized controlled trial of ivermectin in COVID-19. 400 patient treatment arm uh, study and a 200 patient prevention arm. Massive findings. Hospitalization rates, one versus 22. Mortality rates, 2% versus 20%. And guys, I'll get news for you. It's going to be on the front cover of the New England Journal of Medicine next week. Not, right? I got to work on my delivery. I'm not a comedian, but I try. Um, actually, what's happened to his journal, his paper, is that the Lancet 
rejected it at the editorial level. In a pandemic, study randomized showing massive reductions in hospitalization mortality, Lancet rejected it, Nature rejected it, Chest rejected it, Respirology rejected it, and the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy rejected it. He cannot publish. It's been on a preprint six months ago, and I'll tell you how, how insane this works, is that you'll see these, these you know, august ivory towers saying, oh, these are on preprint. They're not peer-reviewed yet, so you can't trust them. Well, of course you can't trust them if you're not going to publish them. They're going to be languishing on peer review forever. It's insane. And then what do the journals publish? What do the journals publish? They publish this piece of crap. Right. So this was just a failed trial, meaning they, they were counting on like 80 people of the of the 400 getting sick, 12 people got sick, meaning uh, deteriorated. So they had like no events. And even with that, there was a suggestion of benefit for ivermectin. But they actually concluded in this that there's no reason to use uh, ivermectin in COVID. It's it just this trial is so crazy that actually it, it's incited a rebellion. Um, there's an open letter by way more than 100 doctors who absolutely thought this was egregious of JAMA in the middle of a pandemic to publish such a crap study. It was a failed study. And to actually allow its conclusion, which is that you shouldn't use ivermectin in COVID, uh, th th this is just, uh, it's just crazy. But I'm just showing you now. This is the other things they can do. They publish opinion letters telling people, don't listen to this misleading clinical evidence. These independent experts who, you know, have been publishing for decades, like our group alone, you know, Paul Marek is the second most published intensivist in the history of critical care medicine, right? Tess Lowry, her group, Professor Amura, Nobel Prize winner, you have all these groups. But these guys, these geniuses, Garagnani, Madrid, and Meza, uh, they decide, or they were paid, I'm sorry, I'm not sure which it was, um, to write a review saying, don't believe anything. It's all bad evidence. It's all low quality. And so this was in their conclusion. They're saying to the world, you know, you should really just base your decisions on trustable evidence. So that's implying that it's not trustable evidence. Without conflicts of interest, that's a joke. Almost every trial in ivermectin were done by trialists with zero conflicts of interest. It's the other side that have conflicts. With proven safety and efficacy, I'm sorry, but the safety is proven for ivermectin, 40 years, 4 billion doses. And then they say in patient consented, ethically approved, every single study in ivermectin had a patient consent and was ethically approved. This is absolute garbage. But look at some of the august journals that are publishing this crap. Guys, this is not subtle. It's insane how this goes. I'm just trying to spell it out for you. Some bright lights. So Vikas, uh, Vikas Sukatme, he's the dean of the Emory School of Medicine. He is publishing in the Times of India really great papers. Um, this paper actually wasn't taken down, but it was taken down and put back up and watered down. So the first version, they actually had to remove, but a lot of people got screenshots of this, but it really forcefully argues for uh, ivermectin and fluvoxamine, uh, and, it, and it champions the successes in India. And so I noticed that the dean of the Emory School of Medicine is not publishing in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the uh, you know, Washington Post. He, had, he can publish this in India, but not here, right? So we're on lockdown here. And then our friends Merck, 
Uh, Satoshi Amura asked them to do research on ivermectin and COVID. Remember, it's off patent. Merck has zero financial gain from ivermectin. Uh, it's the world's drug now. It's not Merck's. And so uh, they apparently were not interested in doing conducting uh, clinical trials, even at the request of a Nobel Prize winner. And then Merck, again, this is a criminal action, in my opinion. They just somehow one day, I think this is the PR for the PR desk. Uh, these weren't scientists, by the way. Uh, the PR firm decided they didn't really like what was happening around ivermectin. It looked like it was getting too close to their competing molecule. And so they put out this insane statement, which is basically just three lies. Um, and they showed no supporting evidence for these statements. And yet the world ate it up. Everywhere you see, Merck says it doesn't work. Merck says it doesn't work. It's, I just, I can't, I can't contain myself. Um, and just so you know, you know, uh, you got to get the public's hearts, their minds, their eyeballs, right? So now we're getting ads. Um, uh, we got to start putting ads for, for ivermectin to compete. Um, you know, we actually can put ads as a public service announcement. And so uh, maybe uh, we can get some wealthy donors to give us money for ads and we'll compete with, uh, what is this one? This is Regeneron with their monoclonal antibodies. Um, and then there's oral pills that are coming. Uh, Pfizer, uh, Gilead has one. Gilead now has an oral remdesivir that they're going to try to perpetrate on, on society. So like I said, guys, the amount of competition for little ivermectin is incalculable. And then um, it wouldn't be called regulatory capture without the capture of regulatory agencies. So the FDA decides to weigh in with one of the dumbest statements in history, which is they have a picture of a horse. They tell people don't use horse ivermectin and don't use ivermectin because it could be dangerous because it doesn't have the FDA approval. Not mentioning that it'll never get FDA approval because no one will ever do the study that'll get FDA approval because there's no money in it. Um, and, and, and they also actually say in this statement where they say, don't use it, it's dangerous. They say, oh yeah, we haven't reviewed the data to support use, um, but some initial research is underway. I mean, just guys, I'm not making this stuff up. You, this actually sounds like it could be a, a comedy skit. It's not, it's not a comedy skit. This is real stuff that's happening. Um, and then remember the, uh, what is it, the Blitz where they attack scientists. This was just 25 minutes of my life that I want back. I did an interview with a reporter for the AP. I went through all of the evidence and then this was the article she wrote uh, just saying there's no proof at all. And she basically, she supported the reason that there's no proof of any efficacy because the NIH doesn't recommend it. And so I would like to say, well, you knew that before the interview, you could have just written the paper, the article without talking to me, but apparently she needed 25 minutes of my life. Um, and then you guys also know, like, if, if, if you can't get a big trial and get uh, funded by Fig Pharma to get a big public health agency to recommend it, well, then big media doesn't cover it. And then big social media doesn't cover it, right? So it's, it's like they're all in line and it's impossible to get a repurposed drug through the gauntlet. And so here you have social media, right? Sh shutting down Twitter accounts, YouTube community policy specifically prohibits mention of ivermectin. A lot of the people listening to this call right now, uh, probably many of you have gotten warnings, shut down anytime you mention the I word, um, and then even the ivermectin MD team with like 10,000 members got shut down for a few months. A group of doctors who wanted to talk about ivermectin, <clears throat> just insane. And then uh, we were trying to put something out on, on a newswire. They will not accept anything to do with ivermectin. Company policy, we must follow bureaucratic guidelines. Uh, but I got to tell you, I think the tide is turning. Um, 
the uh, Bajaj Healthcare, which actually makes generic ivermectin in India, their stock skyrocketed with the recommendation. So, you know, they're not going to make crazy money. They're not going to make remdesivir money, but they'll make money, a modest amount. Good for them. And they'll save the world by doing it. And then under a lot of pressure in the Philippines, the FDA of the Philippines approved ivermectin. And look at this. This is in the headline as a way to appease lobbying politicians, not based on science, just to shut up the whining politicians. I, it's just insane. Um, and this is just a tweet that I, 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 I was kind of moved by, not in a good way, but I thought this guy nailed it on the head is that, you know, this catastrophe of what's going on around the science in ivermectin and the re recommendations is that he says the problem is that whatever any scientist or expert says and whatever data they present, nobody believes it any longer. Trust in science has been irrevoc irrevocably broken. And that's what happens when science loses its independence and objectivity bought by the highest bidder. And I totally agree with that statement. And then you guys are aware, I've been writing affidavits. We're involved with like six court cases. Ralph Larigo, the attorney who spearheaded all these, he's won every case. We now have judges forced to tell doctors to use one of the world's safest medicines in these patients. And four of the sex have actually survived and made it out of the hospital. The other two are actually been quite ill for a while and they're struggling, um, but there's hope. But the, the judge had to intervene on these. And then this is just, um, I'm going to make one curse word here, but this is just in the batshit department. But this is the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario lost their minds and they put out this public statement. There's a bunch of absurdities in this one, but I want to uh, I want to focus on this one. Unproven treatments for COVID-19. Physicians must not make comments or provide advice that encourages the public to act contrary to public health orders and recommendations. Right. What, what is this, Stalin or Nazi Germany? Like you cannot talk about anything that's not recommended by the gods of science and knowledge. It's just absolutely absurd. And then they warn that you'll get investigated. You could lose your license when offering opinions. You got to follow the law and regulatory standards and you can't be misleading. And God forbid you say anything concerning about a vaccine. It might be perceived as anti-vaccine or lockdown. If you have an opinion that lockdowns might not work, that's bad. Um, and so they're basically saying you are not allowed to have an opinion. Well, guess what? This is a brilliant rebuttal. And I think we need more of this. And this is part of the positive. But this was uh, a declaration made by a group of physicians, the Declaration of Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth. And I want to read this. But they put out a rebuttal immediately and they just went off and they said what that statement asked. It asked us as physicians to deny the use of the scientific method. It asks us to violate our pledge to use evidence-based medicine, and it violates our duty to inform consent about all of those therapies, including vaccines. And then they finish with this, and this is, I think, my last slide, but we physicians believe that with the statement of 30th April 2021, a watershed moment in the assault on free speech and scientific inquiry has been reached. By ordering physicians to be silent and follow only one narrative or else face discipline and censure, the CPSO is asking us to violate our conscience, our professional ethics, the Nuremberg Code, and the scientific pursuit of truth. We will never comply and will always put our patients first. And I don't know, I get chills reading that because finally, doctors are rising up here. We need more of yes. this. And, and so my call to action is to the physicians. 
Stop with these guidelines, guys. These, these guidelines are failed. If you listen to WHO and NIH, your patients will die. They will suffer. They're being prevented really effective therapies if you listen to them. So just stop. Physicians, you got to stop listening to your healthcare systems. You got to stop pushing back. They're literally telling you not to use ivermectin. It's safer than an aspirin. And they're telling you not to use it. It's just insane. And so I think the physicians are failing and you guys got to rise up. Do your own critical analysis of it. Read my paper. I go through it every, I spell out everything for you. Just read the paper. It's an hour of your life and it could save a ton of patients. You can even read Tessa's paper, the Bird document, any of them. They're independent experts. And stop over relying on this poor and delayed, and I'm going to say compromised guidance from the PHAs. And you got to advocate on your patients. And then um, I don't know. When are we marching, guys? I mean, we got to do something. I'd we be, have questions these, about this. <laughs> yeah, me, me giving these webinars. I don't know if it's doing it, but uh, and then last thing, guys, we're fighting. We're David. We're up against Goliath. Um, you guys are helping us, and it's really hugely helpful what you're doing. But um, uh, please continue to do that because we'll continue to fight for you. So thanks. Standing ovation. That's what they're saying on chat for what you just did, Pierre. It's we've run an hour, but we're going to take a couple of questions anyway. And we've got one from Barbara Tobler, who is a friend of the FLCCC. She got ivermectin to her father, who was in the hospital and got him out and he turned around. And Barbara says, okay, what do you think about circulating a petition across the country with a clear objective to allow people the freedom of choice and participation in their own treatment? For instance, it should include a motion to be allowed to sign a waiver in the hospital so people do not have to hire lawyers to get this safe off-label drug and a motion for the doctors to prescribe this cheap, safe, and effective drug to those of us who want it. Many of us want to form a large group that can sign this petition, but we would need to get the wording correct in order to affect change. What do you say? Yeah. And on that, you we? know, I'm not I'm not an expert at grassroots. I, I think a petition is a start. I really don't know. I, I would I would ask the questioner and others. Is there an example of a petition ever changing the world? Um, or do you have to march? Do you have to hit the streets? You know, you know, from what I understand, marching and rioting are, are, are really, it's the voices of the unheard and we're not being heard here. Um, and we need to be heard. Uh, I, I'm all for a petition. If it made a difference, I would totally do it. The problem I know is that I know there are so many well-meaning, smart, engaged citizens who've been writing letters all around the world to all of their leaders. I know those letters are going right, right in the trash bin. And so I, I don't know. I don't know if a, a petition is going to do it. I, I think I think we got to get our voices heard some way. A petitions a start. I think I think maybe marching is another one. One of the uh, one of the questions comes from James Kelly about what's going on in Ontario, Canada, and that is this. Um, well, in a lot of Canada, the business of silencing the doctors. Uh, and I will tell you that just today, we learned that in the New York case uh, in Long Island, the doctor who prescribed the ivermectin has had his privileges withdrawn in the hospital. You know, so the well, doctor- I, I, I heard, I heard, I'm not calling it that, but I'm gonna pass along, so maybe I'm calling it, but I heard a tweet the other day, they called it Nazi Canada. I actually think Canada has gone so far off the deep end and they were always noted for their like sensibleness. They used to be so sensible, but they've really, they've, they just went crazy town. I don't know who's driving that bus, um, but yeah, Canada's in a lot of trouble. 
You know, I, I have to tell you something from, I used to be in the news media, as you know, and CBS years ago, and we had a firewall. You could do any story. It didn't matter who the advertisers were. But I have to tell you, I am stunned whenever I look at television, which we've all done now that we've been home during the pandemic, the number of pharmaceutical commercials, the ads out there for this drug and that drug and everything else. I, well, that's, like, it, how much money and- It's big money. That's why we're here talking about it. It's big money. And, and uh, you know, they, they want to sell their medicines. That, that You know, the care of the patient is not their primary regard. And that's, that's why our organization is what it is. So anyway. Here's a good question. Patricia Rosenstein says, if ivermectin is so effective, why have other drugs been added to the protocol, especially for early disease? That gives her pause that maybe ivermectin is becoming less effective. Can you clarify? Yeah. So first of all, um, uh, yeah. So I don't know why they're saying that. So number one, we've always used combination therapy protocols. Number two, every patient is different. On, on the whole, in populations, ivermectin is still wickedly effective. A couple of things are going on, though. The most important change to our protocols is that we increased the dose range because we're finding that not only in our own practices, but in uh, reports from around the world that was with some of these variants, ivermectin is still very effective, but you need higher doses. That's number one. Number two, we added fluvoxamine not as an upfront drug, but really for cases where significant comorbidities who aren't responding to ivermectin. We do have a minority of patients who don't respond and we don't want to leave them out. Uh, number one. Number two, a lot of times patients come to us late. If you, I will tell you this, test and treat, you don't need anything else. Based on the, uh, the evidence out there, if you go to get a test when you're first feeling ill and you get ivermectin then, you don't need anything else, in my opinion. I think you'd be well served with just ivermectin at the appropriate dose. But many patients are waiting to get tested. They don't get their test results. Some of them don't get tested. Then they're presenting day five, six, and seven. And I'll tell you, for ivermectin, sometimes you do need to add a combination therapy. And so uh, it's just good medicine. Not No one's a cookie cutter. But I will say early treatment, uh, ivermectin alone is probably uh, very uh, highly, almost completely effective. One more here about how safer activities like eating out while taking ivermectin prophylactically. Someone is anonymous is concerned about the handling of food and drinks and such. Um, I, I missed the first part, but um, in the three forms of transmission, um, hand uh, fomite transmission is considered uh, very uh, the least likely. Um, contamination through touching is is really the least likely. Um, and even large droplet is not the most likely. It's airborne. In, in, in most instances, it's airborne or large droplet. But uh, touching and hand to mouth is not the most common. So if you eat out, you have a waiter around, is, you know, breathing. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not considered, uh, if, if that were true, the, the patterns of transmission would be much different. They don't support that to be a significant risk. Okay. So if you're on ivermectin, you can start living, right? Yeah, I mean, ivermectin would protect you from any uh, either hand to mouth, airborne or droplet. I mean, uh, the weekly protocols, the, the data coming out of Argentina, you know, now thousands of, of healthcare workers who are on it every week, they're just not getting COVID zero. That's, well, that's good to know. Um, I think that's probably all that. Well, wait, one more. One final question here from Kate McKenzie. If a pregnant woman contracts COVID, can she take ivermectin? 
So, so that's the one asterisk. So the safety of ivermectin in pregnancy, it's generally thought to be safe is what I'll say. Um, it's generally thought to be safe. However, obviously like with all drugs, we never have good data around pregnancy. Um, in your first trimester, you might have pause, you might wanna delay. Um, you can take it. I, I leave that as a risk benefit. I, I think if you're getting uh, significantly ill, I think the risk benefit is to take it. And, and I'll tell you as an intensivist and as a physician, um, I've always been of the opinion that the best thing for the baby is for the mother to be healthy. So if you worry about not taking a medicine to protect the baby, uh, I think that's oftentimes backwards. Um, you want to make sure that the mother stays healthy um, and it doesn't get severely ill. And that's the best thing that you can do for a baby. So, um, but I, again, that's an individual choice with a physician, but it, it, it's, I think it would be reasonable to take it. And we have a lot of people on chat who want to organize a march. I like it. Well, I'll show up if someone else organizes it. I don't, I can't organize. I'm going into the ICU next week. <laughs> so I can't do it, but I'll take the day off and come down. So. <laughs> Um, we'll have to leave it there. We'll have yeah. to leave it there. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Corey. Um, that's all the time we have for now, folks. Um, if we didn't get to your question tonight, we didn't get to too many, but next week we will, we'll get to them. We'll get to more. And uh, same time, same station. In the meantime, join our FLCCC Alliance, go to flccc.net. You can do it there. And please go to our videos, please share them and please read that scientific review. It's, it's a really good read. And uh, you might read our white paper, although you- Yeah, go I, I would say, I was gonna say that um, is that, um, I would share that white paper uh, if, um, you know, part of the white paper, I have a section which, talk, which talks about how to combat disinformation. And, and part of the way in which to combat it is to share scientific knowledge, share the accurate data. And I think um, sharing that document is part of what you need to do. So anyway. Wonderful. That's it. We've, we've overshot our time here. Thank you yeah. all for watching. It happens. Thank you for your donations. Stay well and we'll see you next week. Okay. Thanks, Betsy. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right, bye.